Today we have with us Brian Minnell. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Very excited to have Brian, who uh, has a lot of experience on both the buy side and the sell side, having launched multiple companies and also acquiring multiple companies. So Brian, please uh, kick us off and tell us about the first the first business that you sold and, and uh, how that process went. Uh, very first one, I think it was in my late 20s, uh, it was a service company I'd started and we just found a niche at the time. Uh, it was, we were helping other technology companies deploy uh, CRM software. And the time the industry was um, going from homegrown CRM systems to buying packages. They never before had, this is a long time ago, never before had to be able to buy a software package for your CRM system. So we would, we, our partners would go sell them and we'd clean up behind them and go implement them and customize them and make them work. And uh, caught the attention of a company, this is actually how I got to Austin, but it caught the attention of a company out of Houston. Um, I was recruiting people in Houston for a Houston office because we were expanding and growing. Met a recruiter and he said, you know, you remind me a lot of this guy that I know who's an entrepreneur and he's grown this big services company. You should just meet, just have lunch and whatever. So we met, had lunch, hit it off. Um, and we had no capital in the business. So I was trying to grow the business without any outside capital whatsoever, which is really hard. We only grow at a certain rate out of cash flow. And eventually convinced me to just join forces and kind of build my CRM group within his company because they had resources to hire people and whatever it is. So, um, so that was the first one I ever sold. Had no idea what I was doing. Um, the, uh, the goal was we wanted to get all the paperwork done by 1231 and have a clean start, right? So the deal was done 1231 and January 1st, I think it would start, be easy to do tax returns, all sorts of things. And so um, to do those things, right, you have to have certain deadlines you're trying to hit. Well, it turns out Christmas Day, I was visiting my family in California on Christmas Day, and we had an eight-hour conference call to hammer out deal points. Like we had to get it done that day in order to get everything else complete by then. So I was on an eight-hour conference call, me and my attorney, the buyer, their attorney, like basically, and we were on the phone. We'd take a break to like eat for a half hour and then get back on the phone. My family hated me. This day, they still remind me of uh, the Christmas that I was on the phone all day on Christmas Day. Um, but we got it done though. Closed 1231 and, and, um, and, uh, and that was a great deal like for everybody, um, actually for a while. So the reason that I actually wanted to sell to these guys was because they had an S1 in hand. They're getting ready to go public and file. So they were a private company. So I'm exchanging my shares in my private company for their shares in their private company. Still doesn't help me pay my mortgage, right? But they've got an S1 in hand and they're going to go file and uh, then get some liquidity, right? And then they didn't. They ended up actually up selling uh, to a bigger company for more money than they would have gone public at in terms of valuation. Um, seemingly great deal. And then uh, that acquiring company that acquired us before we even got our stock certificates in the mail, um, turns out they were cooking the books. This is long before Enron. They were pioneers in fraud. And uh, mm -hmm. they, uh, they suffered the biggest one-day stock drop in NASDAQ history in their stock. Wow. And we hadn't got our shares yet. So just like, uh, okay, great. So that all went awry, you know. Oh, <laughs> who could foresee that? Like nobody could, obviously. There were people that had much bigger dollars at stake than me by far who were just like devastated and whatever. But, you know, crazy things happen. So what would you have um, – what have you done differently in that first deal knowing what you know now? There's no due diligence I could have done that could have seen that happen. Mm -hmm. 
you know? So just things things happen. You just got to pick up, start the next one. I left to start another company. You know, we tried to stick it out, actually, and go actually buy back our company from the parent company. You know, by the financing to do it, but it just you know, it didn't work out that way. And so I just left and started another company. So let's talk about the other company. So that company largely was very similar business to the one that I sold. So we partnered with technology companies and helped implement their software. But what changed was that um, that old company was old technology. At the time, it was called three-tier client server technology. And this is 97. This is when the internet was getting big. So um, it largely was the same type of business, but with internet-based software instead of actual like client server installed um, technology. Um, and uh, just got lucky. Like a lot of things happened um, at the same time. Number one, it's the tech boom, right? So things were growing very rapidly. Um, we got lucky in a, our first software partner was a company here in Austin called Vignette Software that was just growing leaps and bounds. Had more business than we could do, right? You know, we would, if you could spell Java, we'd hire you and put you out in the field to do work. Um, so, and then uh, that company would end up, uh, ended up taking public in 1999. Um, so, it was it was just the same type of company as I'd done previously, just in more internet-based technology because it was sexier and it was the newer stuff and harder to find people with the skill set at the time. So, it was um, people like, oh, that's really cool that you would do that, but it was exact same business I had before, just with a different sort of technology thing. So I kind of knew the playbook in terms of how that worked. But um, but uh, didn't expect to take it public, but it was just more happenstance that it worked out that way in terms of meeting the right people in the right situation and whatever that resulted in that. What was the, the pr- what prompted the decision to go public versus um, getting acquired? Um, I had, it was all people, like relationships. So in the process of this uh, other company, I had met some folks. I met a guy who was, well, two guys. Um, uh, one was a director of finance at a, a company called Blockbuster. Um, and the other one was uh, an attorney that had done um, all the paperwork. So the finance guy would go find the mom and pop video stores for uh, in every little town for Wayne Hazinga and go make a deal to acquire the company. The attorney would go um, do the paperwork and roll them up. And the two of them, we just went across the country and just acquired tons of mom and pop video stores and created the blockbuster nationwide empire. So they knew how to, um, and blockbuster was public at the time, so they knew how to go acquire companies with public stock and do, a, in essence, a roll-up strategy, a nationwide roll-up strategy. So I met them, and we just talked about, like, how to grow the business. And they said, well, have you ever talked about or thought about doing a similar type of roll-up strategy? Because there was hundreds of companies like mine 20-person services organization all across the country um, that really, as a 20-person services company, like, it's hard to attract venture capital, hard to find an exit, right? Your backlog of projects looks like, you know, you're out of business in six months because your client projects are done, right? So it's it's hard to get liquidity. So it's like, great, well, we could go roll up these smaller companies and, you know, get them liquidity because the stock is public and then use the public stock as the tool to go do things. So... Um, I just met these guys. One was on my board. The other one came aboard as CEO and had the relationships because he was an attorney out of New York. He had the relationships in New York with an investment banker that could do the IPO. It was a small cap IPO. It wasn't big. but And then it was just off the races, right? 
until 2000 hit. <laughs> yeah. How so, long did the whole process take of, of going public? Um, wasn't that long, really, because this is a very small cap IPO. It's like $25 million IPO, which is like one check from somebody. Not, not really, but, you know, but it's pretty small. So um, CEO did a roadshow in New York and a couple of other cities. Not long, seven days, I think, if I remember right, and just got it done. So it was relatively quick because it wasn't a big amount of money. Um, and then we had all ready to go. And then it was then it was just a matter of, like, figuring out the process to go find the right companies, find an investment banker that could go scout and do all the phone calls and do all the research and and find the people. I think we went through, I think it was about the third investment banker we found that really got it in terms of what we were looking for and, and found the best quality companies. So I think we went through a couple before we finally found the one that really worked out well mm-hmm. for us. So let's talk about that because this is where you basically are on the buy side. Uh, you're now, right. now looking to buy companies. So how did you find them? What were you looking for? And, and what were some of the things that the, maybe the bad investment bankers weren't getting that the good one did? Um, yeah. So we were looking for, um, in that business, um, you want to find like a sort of a technology practice that has a complementary skill set to what you do, right? So we had relationships with companies like Portal Software and Vignette and those sorts of things. So ideally, we find someone's kind of like us. But their relationships are with, you know, companies building data warehouses or whatever, right? So something that we're not doing. So that it's complementary to what we're doing. So when you couple together like three, four, five, six, seven of these, you have a distribution of different types of businesses that you're in. So you have less risk in terms of one niche that you're in. Um, looking at it as a whole, you look like a very diversified technology company, right? So you look better to the outside. Um, so we learned that complementary in terms of geography worked out well. So we were big in, you know, Texas, Southwest, Midwest, whatever. You acquire somebody who's big on the West Coast, like, great. It's very complementary. Because if you acquire someone who's got an office down the street, then it's like, okay, do you come to our office? Do we come to your office? Like, do we find a bigger office together? Like, who's who really is, the, you know, usually the who who's the bigger practice here? Who's like, we're going to use our processes and procedures. For, like, you know, have that contention. So complementary always worked you know, better for things. And then um, another thing that we learned around that time and also later was in terms of integration was like the mindset of people when they get acquired. Um, you know, when you, we had this sort of game plan we developed even early on, but, you know, you acquire a company, um, you give them 30 days to just kind of keep doing what they're doing um, and not change anything and not make anything happen. And they're kind of absorbing the shock of the people like, okay, it's going to be something they knew. And then there's this period of time when like you leave Friday at five o'clock and you're part of your previous company and then you come in Monday morning and now you're part of this new company. You're, you've got a new computer, you've got a new phone on your desk, you've got a different badge, the name on the wall is different. Like you're now part of company X. You're an, you know, that company is gone. Now you're part of this company. Um, and it's super important because a couple of things happen. People have to make they make a decision in their minds like I'm either on board with this or I'm not, right? So they're either like, yes, we're part of a bigger company X, cool, I love the mission, like great, like I'm on, or they're like not going to make the journey, right? So you're trying to figure out like who's in, who's out. Ideally, like everybody stays, right? Um, doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes these things happen and like the top talent walks out the door. Man, that's like really rough, right? Like that's a deal that does not work out because the better people walk out. So there's there's ways that you sort of like get people bought in and then 
you can't just like leak it in slowly and do things like you got to like pull the bandaid off and then figure out who's in who's out fast right so people people check out right but they check out in two ways they check out either privately or they don't they only tell their wives that like this sucks i don't really want to be here anymore and they kind of phone it in uh, or they tell their coworkers or their boss like i don't want to be here this like sucks and if they publicly check out like great you just move on you're gone because that's you just pull the bandaid off um but ideally the majority stay with it and and move on but um kind of a lesson learned in terms of integrating people like you just have to um get him on the on the boat at a certain period of time and just like like all new everything right i got a new business cards on my desk a new phone on my desk like they got to feel like this is a new dawn new day like start a new company and uh sort of like a acquisition game plan playbook in a way what advice would you have to founders who are about to be integrated into another company or or maybe uh are considering multiple offers um knowing that they're going to be integrated into one of those companies multiple offers is a whole other thing right so being integrated you got to kind of figure out like where are my people like going right how they fit in where do i fit into this company um you know what's our role how do those things happen who's who's important to who there's a lot to, to figure out um in terms of um the uh the other side of that uh in terms of uh, like where you're you know how you go and how you're going to fit in oh multiple offers like scenario is really like different um too because typically if you're not looking to sell like someone shows up your doorstep right and they're like hey i really like what you're doing like you know you get a call from the corporate de- development guy right says hey like you know like your stuff let's let's talk right and then you're you're getting bought someone's interested in what you're doing and that's great like it's a great feeling like wow people are really interested in what we're doing there was a company that a friend of mine started and convinced me to come on board um as ceo and uh it was just like the two of us it was super small it was young we can't even fire our first customers yet and my first week in the job like i had a phone call from a corporate guy at a huge company that's now public multi-billionaire company and whatever and you're like wow this is like cool like they're really interested in what we're doing and they want to give you a term sheet and like okay want to acquire you and like whatever but then you have a decision to make like well this is what they're offering me but is this the market value of my company like you don't know because you got one offer right so then what do you do well you get another term sheet right like all right who else might be interested but then that's a lot of work right now instead of running my company i have to go call uh companies i think that might want to acquire me right and open up the conversation in some way while keeping this other one at bay right without signing a term sheet or committing to a no shop right now i got to go like okay well who else in the industry might be interested and that's a lot of work right um or you hire an investment banker and just like hey go shop me around to sell me like someone's interested so maybe i'm interesting you know go you know make some phone calls and see what's there um but then you're buyer that you had in your pocket like might walk away and be like oh i i didn't want to go be a part of a process where you're gonna sell the highest bidder i just wanted to you know buy you because i thought you were interesting right so they might you might lose them and have them walk away so it's really tricky when you get that first and it's probably happens a lot of entrepreneurs like you just get that call like oh big company x is like really interested in us like what should i do right so um and then it's just a in terms of the entrepreneurs from my perspective it's kind of a game in a way that you have to play the right way like disinterest is your best friend like the first call they go wow we're really interested and you go oh we're not selling 
right? Oh, you sure? Oh, I'm positive. You know, why not? It's like, well, you know, uh, we're still two two guys and a dog in the office. Like, you know, we didn't start this company to go sell for 10 million bucks to some Silicon Valley company and then go be wage slaves to you guys, right? Like, we built this to be a billion dollar company. You know, go away. And then, you know, they do. And then they come back 30 days later and they go, well, what if it was not 10? What if it was like 15 million? Like, would that be different? You know, like, so disinterest is your best friend. Like, you know, I always tell, I, I mentor and work with, with companies that are sometimes in this position. I tell them like, you know, you want the potential buyer who flew in your window, you want to tell them that you're on this path to being a billion dollar company. If they're going to dis- distract you off that path, like it better be a really interesting offer, right? To like distract us from going here because I'm focused on this. Like you're taking up my time talking about this, like that I don't need it or want it, right? So, because then they want to come at you harder and faster. You know, if you're super interested, it's like dating, right? It's like, you know, who's more interested? Like you were the other person. So like disinterest is your best friend. Like you just have to play this weird game of keeping them at bay to get them more interested to increase the price, right? Um, or find multiple bidders, like other people that might be interested on the down low in a way. So it's hard. And the worst part is it's time consuming, right? If you're going to, if that first one comes in and you're going to go find three more or something like that, you're probably committed to actually doing some sort of transaction because it's going to suck up all your time and you're going to stop running the business and you're going to start looking for a deal on a transaction. So you kind of have to decide like if it's yes or if it's no. Like if it really is no, like no, just no, go away. Like great, just tell them no and make them go away because they'll come back You know, you, in three months or six months. Like they still want to keep in touch with what you're doing. But so it's very hard. It's like the choice to make, right, when that interest comes in. And it happens all the time, I think, right? Um, there's like one company that we were talking to, like they, I did some research on them. Like they acquire 14 to 30 companies a year. Right? They have an M&A machine. This is like what they do. Like they outsource innovation and acquire companies. So, um, and to acquire those 30 a year, they're talking to 300, right? So there's lots of conversations going on, lots of entrepreneurs, guys at young startups like me, they're getting lots of inbound, right? So, and nobody teaches you in MBA school how to handle inbound interest from CorpDev, right? In terms of the right way. Um, but usually if your attorney is good at, or your your board, right? Or your advisors are experienced. Like they'll sort of, you know, steer you right. Like, okay, here's how we should handle this. Here's how we should respond. Here's how we should do this to just sort of play the game right to maximize value if that's what you're after for your shareholders and yourself. When is the right time to sell? Uh, when things are going shitty, right? If things are going well, you don't want to sell, right? So um, when growth stops, slows down, Operational challenges get to be more than you can handle, right? Or you can't raise capital, you know, and you see the the cash dwindling at a certain point, you know, you need to do a deal. Nobody sells when things are going well, right? So, I mean, when you see the news locally here in Austin, oh, so-and-so sells for, like, whatever, we go, oh, congratulations. But, like, deep down you go, like, oh, something's not going well, right? Unless they just, like, totally backed the gold truck up at your door and dumped it off, like, then, yeah, that's, like, great. But usually, like, you're selling for a reason, whatever reason so time to sell i would say is when growth the growth rate slows down because multiples are had for strategic reasons and also for growth multiples right so when the growth starts to slow down time to think about you know bailing out so during that time period how do you make your company attractive to buyers um 
I've done this before, right? Um, you got to put the lipstick on the pig and make it look good. Typically, as you're slashing costs, you're reducing R&D expenses, you're no longer investing in the future. Long-term things, you, things will pay back a year down the road, two years down the road. You're cutting all those things to put that money at the bottom line, to make the bottom line look better. Because um, there's two types of buyers, right? There's strategic buyers. They're buying you because your technology is going to make them worth a billion dollars more, right? Or they're buying you for cash flow. Like you're, you know, you put a million bucks to the bottom line every year, and so we'll buy you for seven times cash flow because that's what the discounted cash flow model says. And so we'll do those kinds of deals like all day long, right? So ideally, you're never bought for cash flow because that's going to be the smallest number you're going to get. Ideally, you're bought for some strategic technology relationship, something that you have that somebody is going to buy you for twenty million, but they're going to use your technology to go make a billion dollars next year off, you know, because they have um, bigger scale than you do, right? So that's the ideal because then what are you worth? You're worth a lot more than the cash flow. You're worth like a lot of money to them because they're going to use you to make a billion dollars, right? So you're worth a billion dollars. You're not worth, you know, 20 million. They're not going to pay a billion, but you're going to get more off the strategic multiplier than on the cash flow model. When's the right time to bring in an investment banker? What, what types of deals should you bring an investment banker for? Um, when you're selling, mm-hmm. if you want to sell. So my opinion on investment bankers is that um, investment banker, the right investment banker has a tremendous black book, right? You're like, I'm ready to sell, go shop me and find a deal. And the right eye banker, they know the person at the com- at the buyer that you want that makes the decisions and looks at deals and companies. So they're going to go build a book for you that they can distribute. They're going to make 10 phone calls to the guys who buy people just like you. So their big value is their, their black book and their relationships with those companies. Um, I don't believe, however, that investment bankers are the best people to maximize the value of your company for you. In my experience, the entrepreneur is the better negotiator on the deal than an investment banker. Because investment banker, depending on how you structure the deal, like their minimum, like their take minimum is like a million bucks plus a success fee plus a whatever, like, but getting an extra two million for you doesn't really mean a whole lot to them in the grand scheme of things. They just want to get a deal and get the money. They don't care about maximizing the extra little bit for you that might make the difference for you. So um, so in, in my experience, investment bankers, are, um, their value is the Rolodex, um, not, the, um, not the negotiation part of the deal. Um, but also keep in mind that the investment banker is not your friend. They're the friend of the company buying you, right? So they're shopping you to big company X, right? They're shopping you to the head m and guy at Google who's their best friend they play golf with. Well, they're going to have that relationship with the corp dev guy at Google for the next 30 years, ideally for them, right? Um, so for them and that transaction, like you're just one more deal coming through the flow. So they're not incented to go mess up that relationship to get you the best deal. They just want to get a deal, right? You see what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, plus, sometimes those investment bankers will have other services. Like they'll, they will help employees um, sometimes get liquidity on stock before IPO or whatever, right? So they want all kinds of money from that big client of theirs. Um, it's a huge revenue stream, and you're just one deal in many deals, right? So they're not really your friend, right? They're really the friend of the company selling it to you. So you need to utilize that relationship to your benefit in the best way you can um, and just understand, like, follow the money and you can follow where the um, incentives are for things. Did you use an investment banker for all the companies that you've sold? 
Um, I have never hired an investment banker for any companies I've sold, no. Oh, interesting. Um, at Proficient, which was public, we hired an investment banker to go find us, find companies uh-huh. on the on the uh, buy side. Uh-huh. Um, but I've never hired an investment banker to go um, shop and sell a company. Very interesting. So from the buy side, how, how did you find your investment banker? Well, you know, what were some of the criteria you were looking for? Um, in the companies I've been involved with, I was not the person that found, like that shopped and found the right ones. Um, but uh, the companies I've been involved with, um, I know it's it's typically been like a fit and their ability to just find the right ones that are a good fit. So you will give them the criteria, they go and search, and what they bring you, you look at, and you figure out like, well, is that really what we're looking for or not, right? So if they're bringing you things that aren't a good fit, they're just wasting your time, right? So, um, so sometimes you'll, you'll try one for a while, see what kind of deals they bring you, and see if they just sort of really get what you're after. It's no different than like a headhunter. You're like, I need a stellar VP of sales. And they throw you some people and you're like, this isn't the kind of guy I was thinking at all, right? So you just like, you hire a different headhunter and say like, well, let's, now you go buy me some VP of sales. Like, oh yeah, like you get me, you know what I'm really looking for, right? So same kind of thing. Um, they're gonna bring you companies that kind of have that fit that you want. And so when they consistently don't, you just know you need to move on. Um, big companies imagine just hire maybe multiple for different industries, like someone who's great in finance, someone who's great in this, maybe you have different you know, people as you can compare and contrast, but typically you've got the time and money to hire one to go do something. So it's a little bit of a, just a dating process to find someone that seems to bring you the right things that you that you want. Having been on both sides of the table of um, buyer and seller, what recommendation or advice would you give to companies selling their company about the due diligence process? Um, there's a lot of things. Number one, um, like I sold one company to a company that had never acquired a company before ever in their lives. And then I had almost sold a company to a company that acquires 30 a year, right? So, um, and from the entrepreneur side, the experience is totally different to work with somebody who like knows what they're doing to someone who has no clue what they're doing, right? And so it's a much better process for me with someone that just like they know the steps one two three here's what we do next here's and it goes fast it's less expensive in terms of attorney's fees it just like boom 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 and gets done right and they know how to integrate you too once they acquire you like it's just a machine um so if you get approached by somebody like one of the first questions you look at is like well how many companies do you acquire per year like are you good at doing this right um how many do you talk to how many end up doing a deal right and then from a diligence perspective, like I would say like, well, hey, could I talk to three CEOs of companies you've acquired in the past two years and ask them, how's their experience been? How did the deal go? Negotiations? You know, what are they still doing with the company today? Have they enjoyed, you know, because ideally they want to acquire you, you want to stick around for a while, um, not just get paid to go away, right? So um, there's lots of questions, you know, in terms of qualifying these guys you can, you can ask. Um, and if they don't acquire a whole lot of companies, just know it's going to be a kind of a rocky road. Um, cause they just don't know what they, what they don't know. And then same with the attorneys on their side buying you, like, you know, you got to research them. Like, is this what you guys do all day long every day? Or is it like, oh, my neighbor will do the deal. And cause my neighbor is an attorney, an attorney is an attorney, right? You know, but you know, not all are created equal. So you want to make sure that like there are these people that just, they do this all day long cause they just know how it works. Right. And then. The thing that, I don't know how long it took me to realize this in terms of negotiating these things, but 
you know, you get a term sheet and it's like, okay, here's how much and whatever. And then like, great, let's go let the attorneys do the paperwork on this. But then the paperwork process is just, the whole process is just shifting risk, right? It's trying to figure out the whole list of possible things that could go wrong. And if it does, whose fault is it and who pays, right? So like every aspect of what you have to look at and understand is just the risk shifting. And then if you've chosen the right attorney, they're just really good at explaining to you more in plain English or in business terms, like what risks we're talking about and who's uh, taking on that risk. Um, you know, what happens if, and trying to explain that. Um, and then the whole thing is just like risk, like who's absorbing the risk for this, right? Is that my fault or is that your fault? Like, you know, you take my technology, you go deploy it to 20,000 customers that you have, and then the technology stops working. Well, and that costs us like, you know, $800 million in damages or whatever. It's like, okay, that's your fault. Like, well, wait a minute. Like, I'm not making $800 million off this deal to begin with. And also, like, those are not my customers, right, too. So, you know, they'll try to shift as much risk onto you as possible. And then, you know, ideally, you're not trying to accept, you know, that much risk. But in the best of all possible worlds, when you get done, you have a 120-page document that you toiled over for 60 days that everybody signs. And then it goes in a drawer and you never pull it out again. Ideally, right? Because if you have to pull out of the drawer, something went wrong, like drastically wrong, and you're looking at every word and what it meant and all that sort of stuff, right? So ideally, you put it in the drawer, you never see it again. Because if you do, like, you're having to look at it like, oh, dear, like, what's what's going on, right? So, um, so it's a weird thing to spend that much money on a document that thick and that size that you hope you never see again. <laughs> what's the most common surprise or, or kind of challenge that uh, occurs during an M&A process. Um, you've seen it from both buyer and seller across multiple companies. Like what's the one point of contention that you've kind of seen that's most consistent, you know, kind of across companies? Um, Is there one? Possibly IP maybe, mm. right? Because they want to know what you have and how it works, right? And you don't want to show them because if I show you, then you just go do it, right? You know, a big company that can go afford to hire 50 engineers to go reproduce what you did, um, they've got the money to do that, right? So, but obviously they don't, otherwise they would just do it, right? So they want to know all the secrets, but you don't want to tell them because then that's your secrets, right? So it's kind of like, you know, we have this black box, you know, if it's really code or technology, we have this black box and I'm going to show you what goes in and what comes out, but I'm not going to show you how the sausage is made, right? Because that's our intellectual property. And if I show you, then you just go do it. You don't need to buy me anymore, right? So it's hard to get people comfortable with that. And so there's ways to do it, right? There's like, you can hire a third party that's bound by confidentiality that goes and looks at it and they report back and say, oh yeah, like the sausage really does get made. Like it's really getting made. Like, it's not magic or it's not like, it's really actually happening. And the third party, like, I can't tell you, but I'm uh, skilled in the art of looking at technology. And I can tell you that, yes, the sausage does get made and you'll be happy when you get the box and you open it up and you see what's inside. So sometimes that's very contentious. Um, because a lot of times companies, they'll just, it costs them nothing to throw you a term sheet because it's non-binding. And then, oh, show me all your secrets. And then they go, oh, those aren't the secrets I thought that they were. And we don't really want to buy you because I thought it was, I thought we we're getting something different. So good knowing you. See you later. And then they go and talk to their, you know, engineers and go say, oh, go re rebuild this, right? So that's the risk that you have to mitigate is you, you can't show them. Like, so typically the dance of looking at the IP is sometimes the trickiest dance to dance, I think. Would you say that um, kind of summing all this all this up together that um, due diligence is important not just from the seller to the buyer but also from the buyer 
evaluating the seller. Yeah, absolutely. It goes both ways, right? Yeah. So for me, if somebody buys my company, like I hope to go keep working at that company for, you know, 10 more years and still be innovative and still doing the things we're doing. Only for me, I want to see my technology used on a much grander scale, right? This thing I created, I want to go see it deployed at 20,000 customers, right? Because that's cool for me to see, right? Um, and obviously, you know, finish my earnout time and, you know, get the money out of the, you know, process that I hope for. So, um, yeah, so it's people don't always think like you want to do as much diligence on the buyer as they're doing, you know, uh, for you as well too. So there's ways to go about doing that in a way that doesn't feel contentious to the buyer. Like I'm not trying to, you know, <clears throat> put you on your heels or whatever, but um, I just want to know like what's life going to be like once we get this deal done, like day one, like, you know, what, what happens, uh, what happens there. Um, and then two, like negotiation sometimes is weird. Like I had uh, one seller, uh, we were looking to sell the company and we were always dealing with the corporate M&A guy. And we'd ask a question and we would say like, hey, this is like, we have to have this, like, or it's not a deal, whatever. And, you know, he'd be like, oh, well, I don't know. Let me go get an answer for you. And he'd leave the room or go, I'll get back to you in two days, whatever. He'd come back and we'd go through something else. Like, okay, this is like, I can't, I can't agree to this. This is just no way, right? Well, let me find out, right? So it was like, what's going on? Like, well, I have to go ask the, the CFO was the person that he was asking. Um, it's like, okay, well, there's lots of these issues we're going through. Obviously, the CFO is the decision maker here, not you. You're just the corporate M&A guy. So why don't you just go get the CFO in the room so we can just sit down and hammer this out and save time rather than you go away for an hour in person or whatever or two days and get back to me. Like, let's just all get in the room, you know. So always find the decision maker, right? The person who has the power to say yes or no to the terms that you want and then things just go much faster, right? So, I mean, we literally just like flew out and just like sat down at a table, like let's just hash this out and figure out like where they're, you know, each deal point. I can give, I can't give, whatever. I got to give, I got to get. We're just hashing it all out, boom, boom, boom. And then it can go much, much faster. But it was really weird because the guy purported to be the decision maker, but then you you can tell he's not when you ask him a question and he had to force him to make a decision. And he's like, I can't make that call because I don't have the authority. Let me go ask the person who does. Like, well, just get them in the room then. Make things easier. So learn that lesson. Like, Do you have any last piece of way. advice for people thinking of selling their business? Um, I don't know. Like if you really need to sell, it's tricky, right? Um, Sorry, great businesses are bought, not sold. Like if you have to sell, like things are wrong. You want to get bought. You don't want to, you don't want to sell. You want to get bought, right? So if you have to sell, something's going to rye. I feel bad for you, right? So, um, uh, but it happens. Like sometimes you just, you just need to. So um, you just got to make two decisions. Like do you want to run your own process and find the buyers and do your own thing? and approach them and find them or hire somebody that could help you. The problem is in small markets and mid markets, like investment bankers don't want to deal with the company that is looking for a $10 million exit because it's just not a big enough paycheck for them. So you have to go do your own you know, thing and, and find buyers. And if your strength and superpower is starting and running a technology business, then your superpower is not finding buyers and you know creating a book of you know, what you've built, you know, in marketing your company, like it's out of your comfort zone to do. So it's, it's super hard to sell your own, you know, small company to small, um, dollar amount. Um, and these days I don't even know what the threshold is for investment bankers. Like what the minimum is like, 
it's probably maybe like 20 million or so. I don't know. What would you say? About that, yeah. Yeah. Like, so no one's touch it. So unless you think you command, command a price of 20 million or more, then you can hire an iBanker, but they got to take their fee, right? But um, it might be just easier just to hire somebody who's that's what they do mm-hmm. with the caveats that I talked about before, I would say. So it's a hard spot to be in. Ideally, you want to get bought. You want people knocking on your door who want to buy you. You're in a much better position than I, I need to sell or I want to sell. Because um, then usually there's a time frame too that you want to sell by. Like I need to, the cash flow is dwindling. I need to sell by X or the market is slowly going away. I need to sell by like whatever. So it's selling is a very, if you have to sell, it's just a very hard spot to be in. It's good advice. Get good advisors, board members, mentors, or whatever that have done it before that can help you with the process. If you can't afford an investment banker or just doesn't make sense, that's that's when you're, the time you invest early on to find the right advisors and board members will pay off is at that at that moment for sure. That makes a lot of sense. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on.